Yeah, one of my professors of social ethics say that every consumer is a voter. Every time yeah. that you buy something, it's a vote for someone that produces it. Oh, what a great way to think about it. You buy it, you're voting for that organisation. Yeah, I like that. Welcome to Christmas Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapmanger. I'm Cynthia Zell. And I'm Rob Snowmanahan. And this week, to provide some festive food for thought, we're going to explore the world of AI, but this time through the world of ethics and through some of the biggest conversations that are going on in the subject in the world at the moment. We're also going to have a look at some frameworks that some of the leading minds in the world of AI and ethics are using to help frame up the problem. But before that, Rob and I were in the office this week and I'd wandered off from my desk and I came back and Rob had gone. I looked around for him and I found him standing in the corner of the office decorating a Christmas tree. But he was very distracted and he had tinsel around his neck and he was just sort of staring to one side and I was like, Rob, what's confusing you this way? Well, the reason the star didn't get to the top of the tree, David, is I'm getting a bit confused about SuperCloud. Now, what is that, though? What is, like, what is it? Uh, well, uh, apparently, it's the next layer of abstraction. So you've got your hyperscalers, and what you do is you build an abstraction layer on top. So the hyperscalers still provide the compute, but this SuperCloud, your application and data can move anywhere to where it needs to, to do what it needs to do. And as I think about it, I go... Well, you basically got cloud brokerage and you can do things to get the cheapest price and all that sort of stuff. But actually, you've abstracted away from the underlying platform and you're missing maybe what that underlying platform can do for you. So there's that bit. And then I thought about it for a while and I thought, but who needs it? Where's the use case, right? Where's it? So there's probably some niche use cases where it makes sense. But actually, for the, the standard user or the standard enterprise, I don't get it because each individual hyperscaler has enough capacity anyway. And then I thought to myself, am I just a Luddite and not thinking forward to the world and missing some wider point? So fundamentally, hence why I had my tinsel problem. I, I, can, I can see why you struggled with that. But I mean, to me, I think that the thing that I would, I'm confused about in this point is, is there a difference between like multi-cloud environments that have got some form of abstraction layer and there are some out there like, you know, the likes of Anthos and stuff like that, and I'm sure there are a bunch of third-party ones, that, yeah, allow some illusion of portability or at least multi-cloud control. And that's sort of how I mentally visualize that type of thing instantiated in the current technology. Is there a difference between that and SuperCloud? Yeah, because, I mean, the concept of SuperCloud is you don't, you don't know where your computer is going to run today. It just runs where it needs to run, which means the value add from the hyperscalers actually goes into that abstraction and takes it away from them. So they become commodity brokers. So you could almost trade compute on the open market. Yeah. So it's cheaper over there today. I'll use that. But then when you think about the actual complexity of engineering that into your system and building the application architecture to what end and what value, you know, because are you going to put all that effort in to save 10% 10% on a particular day or something like that. I really do need to see more of the use cases to properly understand who's going to use this. But there are loads of organizations out there building platforms to do it. So, you know, somebody's betting in, it's got a load of VCs behind it as well. So it could be the next big thing. 
Who knows? It feels like those halcyon days of early cloud to me where people were thinking there'd be brokerage across it. I mean, maybe it's inevitable, but I think that I think the problem has to be solved. The, the problem you made, or rather the point you made, I've made plenty solved. of problems, David. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Ask a question and walk away. That's what I heard. <laughs> the point I was going to make, though, was more about the issue that you talked about at the beginning, which is once you've abstracted, you've abstracted away from the underlying goodness, like the underlying yeah. functional. And the and multi-cloud, you know, the, the the most important aspect of the multi-cloud definition to me has always been functional architecture, you know, use the right tool for the right job in the right place, you know, and then and then you balance that with aspects of scale and being able to sort of, you know, get the the right economies of scale across it at the same time. I don't think we're going to resolve the whole super cloud thing today, Rob. I'm putting that on the table. Uh, I think it'll be a, a five-year thing. Uh, I think we're just starting the hype cycle on it now, so we'll see where it gets to. Very good. Now, on to today's main subject, and I am absolutely delighted to say that joining us this week is Professor and Father Paolo Benanti, Professor of Ethics and Technology at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, an advisor to the Vatican, and on the advisory board to the General Secretary of the United Nations. Paolo, it is amazing to have you with us today. Why don't you just say a quick hello and tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Hello, it's uh, my pleasure to be here with you, guested here. I'm Paolo Benanti. I'm a professor of ethics of technology at Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, Italy. And I'm used to be focused on AI and ethics. Rome is such a fabulous city. I love it every time I go. There's so much there to see. It's like endless, endless history around every corner. Such a fabulous place to experience and see. Not to mention the food, Rob. Yeah, the food is also uh, very, very nice. I, I once dragged my boys in uh, 35 degrees Celsius heat around all the Roman villas just above the Colosseum and made sure they knew about every Roman emperor that went through. They weren't very pleased with me. Let's just, let's just say I wasn't popular dad that day. I got all excited. I bet they still talk about that afternoon. <laughs> yeah, in therapy, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like I'd, I'd never cried so much. <laughs> it added to the dehydration, I suspect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a sweltering day, yes. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I enjoyed it, so, you know. <laughs> that's all that's all I can. That's so all, that's all paid for it. Paid for it. So definitely gonna do definitely gonna do all the emperors again. Um, brilliant. And wh- where have you been traveling to recently, Paolo? Anywhere notable? Uh, I was just back from New York City because I was at the United Nations uh, Committee for AI Ethics. Oh, very cool. Um, that must have been a fascinating meeting with all the different viewpoints. Uh, a complex one. Complex one. That's a good way to describe it, yeah. Any useful conclusions drawn? No, it's, it's still too early. We are, it's too weak that we are working. We will see in person on uh, December 7 and 8 again. Hmm. We will see what happens. We are building uh, the document and we will discuss the content of the document. Interesting stuff. And is that a time frame that you can share? How, how far out are you looking before you think it'll get finalized? Uh, well, actually, we, we was asked to keep uh, secrecy on that until uh, an, an agreement is... Uh, is given on the document. Fully understand. No problem. And talking about Rome, I think one of your uh, amazing roles that you get to play is, is an advisory role in the Vatican. I, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Like, How did you get involved and what does the day-to-day of such a thing look like? 
Well, actually, uh, Vatican City is also a little state, probably one of the leaders on the surface of the planet. Mm. But we have uh, around uh, one billion, uh, not citizen, but faithful right. uh, globally. Mm. And so this is the, the show of the complexity of what the business that are going on. Because you are all the diplomacy, you have all the offices that touch all the different things from health uh, to social justice to education. There is a lot uh, of education because a lot of uh, Catholic school around the world. And so every different uh, container, the name is Dicastery, are parts of the life of the Odyssey. And, and because AI, artificial intelligence actually, is a general purpose of technology, it's a technology that is not used to do something, but that we will change everything that we do, like the electricity did before. Hmm. So actually every one of the side of the, of the life of the Odyssey is touched or pinged or questioned by artificial intelligence. And so the different body, from the top to the bottom, are often asking some kind of confrontation about AI and ethics aspect of the AI. And so there are a lot of uh, engagement, confrontation, discussion, uh, whispering things and things like that about uh, AI ethics. And this is what does it mean to be, uh, in some way, someone that cooperates also with the Holy It's a coming together, isn't it, of ancient thinking and thinking that's kind of helped shape society thus far to something new that is truly transformational in society? Well, uh, let me put in the church perspective, you know, because we passed different uh, changing in society that was not so little. Try to think the collapsing of the Roman Emperor. Try to think the Middle Age. Try to think the Renaissance. Uh, Try to think the modern age and all the war of the last century. So the institution in itself is a little bit used to aging, changing. People inside the institution a little bit less. (laughs) And so I have to work on both sides. Although what gives me hope is that humankind has tackled with great challenges and there are a lot of worry about AI, but there's a bit of hope there that says, you know what, we've managed to deal with big things before. Hopefully if we work together, we we can tackle this issue as well. Fingers crossed. Uh, we hope so. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And thus far, if you can talk about it, how is that advice sort of emerging as a go forward? Does it feel to you like, you know, you're obviously talking as part of the UN group that you're working in, you're talking uh, with many figures in the Vatican. What does it look like as a take forward for you? Does it look like a set of principles? Does it look like governance? Does it look like law? Is it a combination of those factors? Well, actually, uh, I can give you my personal perspective in so different table. And uh, my perspective is the perspective of someone that is simple uh, questioning technologies. Uh, being uh, ethical or having an ethical approach to technology means questioning technology about how every single uh, singular technological artifact uh, is actually a displacement of power and a, sor- and a form of order in society. And so my job... It's a really wonderful one because I make I can make all the questions that I want and I have no duty to give any answer. And so I, I ping so on... That sounds like Rob to me. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to say that, Dave. The architect's role is to constantly question everything and then walk off, yeah. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but it's a very important thing, though, that you bring up is asking the right question at the right time 
forces people to think potentially a different way, and that can change the course and the direction that they take. So there is a, a skill in that way you position the question. It's a very, very important role to constantly check the why and have we thought it through, because lots of people like to rush through to a conclusion, job done, off we go, let's go build it. And actually, the unintended consequences of can can be quite bad if you don't ask the right questions at the right time. Yeah, actually, from Socrates, uh, questioning could be really, really dangerous, you know. Uh, Socrates was used to go around and questioning Athens with a lot of things, and they forced him to commit suicide. So questioning could be for good and help people to change or can simply face all the resistance to any kind of change, and that could have a negative uh, negative effect. But uh, questioning is also a matter of having a sort of habit, having a sort of attitude to questioning ourselves in our life. And this is also the spiritual side, if you allow me to express in that way, of being an ethicist. Uh, you, you cannot be, you know, like uh, an engineer that simply make a calculation for a structure. You have also to be used to question to yourself if you are aligned to a certain set of value, what you are doing, what is the meaning, what is the purpose. And then you can have an, a, an easy way to question also technology. Well, let's actually use that as a bridge into the other half of your role, which is a professor and thinking about ethics from an academic perspective as part of your day job also. So why don't you actually frame ethics for us? You know, part, we'll come back to AI in a second, but frame ethics for us in terms of how it impacts our day-to-day lives. Well, actually, every one of us, every, every morning when wake up, uh, a simple facing situation in which there is not uh, an unforceable instinct that drive us in what we do. Uh, this morning, every one of us probably has to choose between uh, coffee and tea or cappuccino or something else. Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of choices is connected to a property that we have as a, 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 as a human beings that is called freedom. But also the consequence of our choices are something that we feel responsible for. So between freedom and responsibility... Ethics is the space in the middle of these two parentheses. Ethics is everything that starts with freedom and ends with that responsibility. And then how do you see that? If you, if you use your, just your simple example, which is like everyone makes a choice on a morning between coffee and orange juice, how does within such a simple choice, does the ethics sit within that simple choice? Well, actually... Ethics is in every choices. Sometimes we can make ethical choices unaware. Sometimes we have some kind of trouble in choosing something. And this is where we call dilemma. An ethical dilemma is a situation in which is involved freedom and responsibility. But that situation looks to us really difficult to be untied and to be solved. But ethics is everywhere. Of course, we are focused and we are used to be focused on the most difficult situation, like, for example, the classical trolley problem. I have a trolley. The trolley can hit five people working on a railroad. If I pull the the, leverage, then I can move the trolley to another uh, track, but one man will die. What I should do? Okay, because we are talking about uh, human life then we can feel so difficult to answer, but the same attitude to answer here and in the example of coffee on tea, both are connected to ethics. 
And I think particularly the chain of responsibility in even in a very basic decision can run a long way. For example, in, you know, are you buying coffee from, you know, a country that's treating its citizens well, it's not a war zone. How much of that should play into our daily lives, even when we're making that sort of decision? Because obviously that's, it's marketed at us a lot these days that, you know, you should choose ethical chocolate and ethical coffee and, you know, many other things. How does that chain of responsibility play into this for you? Well, actually, this is where not only ethics is my necessity to choice, but where also come the ethics that means a, a scientific reflection on what is involved in choices. Mm-hmm. And this is the, a really huge difference because when you talk ethics as a discipline, you are not talking to my decision, your decision, or someone else's decision. You are talking about a, a huge reflection on which kind of decision could be called correct, which one could be called incorrect, which one could be called good, and which one could be called bad. Mm-hmm. And when uh, there is a philosophical system, that we call consequentialism, that say that the only criteria are the effect of the of my of my action. Well, a, a pure consequential aesthetics actually is not workable. In fact, it's a matter of chain of responsibility. Mm. The classical example: imagine that you are on a boat on a lake, and there is a man that is simple droning inside the lake. Uh, should you help him? Well, uh, the effort is to save to save his life, and the answer is yes. What if that man was Hitler? Well, if you allow him to draw, you are saving six million people. Hmm, difficult choices. What if he's the mother of Hitler? What is if the grandmother of Hitler? So where the the, the chain of responsibility ends? Uh, if you if you simple reasoning. In terms of chain of responsibility, you can have no practical way to choices. Usually we are used to say in a philosophical perspective that ethics uh, make you responsible only on the effect that you can be capable to understand. That's a very good point. So if I can comprehend the consequences of my actions, then it's your responsibility to act in what we would say ethically. But if you don't know what's beyond that, what we're basically saying is you can't you can't expect a human to be able to cope with that situation because the the degrees of consequence can go so far that it just becomes out of control. Yeah, and try to think uh, a lot of discussion about uh, some controversial like smoke when the company really understand that smoke can kill. Yeah. Or when uh, the oil company producer can understand that the pollution can kill a lot of people. And so responsibility is a serious matter, not less serious than uh, freedom. So it's that point about when an organization or an individual became aware that what they were doing might have ethical implications. That's what we're basically saying is that that you that's when you act. But you can't really well, could you hold them to account prior to the knowledge that comes out? I suppose there's then a very complicated conversation about when could you have known and did you try to find out? And it goes back to your first point, which is were you asking the questions at the right time and investigating? So there's a, another layer of complexity in there as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I just simply would like to add another layer to your point, you know, because uh, ethics is so long. And because it's so long, we have, uh, we have a lot of reasoning on that. Uh. For some kind of action, you have to be aware before you can do it. Mm-hmm. Think to driving a car. The license is an ethical standpoint that say that you have to be aware that if you go too fast, you can kill yourself and other people. 
So it's not just a matter of being aware after. Sometimes you have to, to being aware before, and then you can do something in that direction. Well, let's use those points to move into the world of artificial intelligence then and, and how some of this stuff plays into artificial intelligence. Because as a jumping off point, it seems to me that we as a society don't really understand this technology and, and the consequences of this technology at all well yet. So to use your chain of responsibility thinking, it's quite easy to excuse behavior that might look reprehensible in 20 years time or actually might look completely innocuous in 20 years time. So how do you approach such a fundamental issue as AI with the amount of ambiguity that surrounds it at the moment? Well, let me let me point out uh, two directions. Direction number one is, well, uh, you know, when I talk about uh, AI, I talk about a machine that can achieve from me the, the ends, and then the machine can choose the means to achieve that kind of ends. And one of the core points on any, every ethical reflection is that the ends is not justifying the means. Mm. And so the first and unavoidable ethical point with AI is that if you have a machine that is using some some means, you have to be aware that you are the one that is responsible of a well-rounded means for that hands. Just to give you an example, uh, uh, being really provocative, I asked to a really sophisticated medicine AI system, I will not say any brand now, uh, what was the best solution to cancel cancer from the face of the earth. Hmm. I know very well that the machine is a mathematical one that would like to bring the function to zero. And so the first answer was kill all the human beings. Of course, you will have no cancer, but that means is not good for that kind of ends. No, and so this is the, the first solution. point. It's not a vote winner, is it? <laughs> It's really radical, you know. <laughs> it's a really radical solution. You go to zero really fast. Well, yeah. the second point is a lot of the major news, the major features that we are getting with artificial intelligence are connected to a series of algorithms that actually are not explainable. So we cannot really understand before and later, why the algorithm choose that solution proposing mm. us that kind of answer. And that makes it really problematic to decide in which field we can apply it. Of course, uh, if we would like to have an autonomous car, probably we would, we, we would like to have something that is able to explain or be explainable about the decision that the car is doing. If we are using image recognition simple to select some kind of beams, in a food procession production unit, mm. uh, it's not so important, you know, because at least you will have 10% of this card that could be could have an ethical effect, but it's not the same ethical effect of have 10% of, of, of people that is walking on the street diet. Yeah, and and yeah. so it's also something really contextual. An ethical approach to AI, it's really, really contextual. Yeah, so the, how you want to use it, frames up the scale of the sort of the ethical dilemma that sits at the heart of what you want to do with it yeah because there's lots of simple applications that you just go yeah get on with it off mm. you go and then it's the the effect of there's always that one about if the machine makes a decision that disadvantages a human and it was based on bad data that was collected from somewhere that was a mistake there's a there's a whole complexity of ethical discussion that goes on about 
where where was that? Was it the data collector that's responsible, or was it the system that applied the algorithm? You know, and there's all these things about the cause and effect associated with the chain of such like. But it's affecting an individual at the end of it who may be disadvantaged off the back of that that sequence, and no individual any way through might have perceived what was going to happen. But the end result is that person has been disadvantaged, isn't it? I mean, how do we cope with that type of thing? It's complicated. Yeah, and this is something that is confusing us, you know, because informatics IT actually already gave us some sort of automation. But the tra- traditional uh, automation that come with IT and electronics uh, is a system in which the programmer should think in every occasion what the machine should do in a chain that is if this, then that. And you have to think about all the if and you will have all the that. Well, when you start to simple train a machine, means that you don't give all the if. You give a set of if and then you drop a machine that run in the real world and you can have an occasion that was not inside the training pool and how the machine will react in that occasion. Uh, Then you have not a deterministic answer but a statistical one. And which kind of action could be acceptable with only a statistical tolerance in the effect. The other aspect of AI that at the moment I think is troubling, at least least it troubles me, is the tension between the commercial aspect of AI and and what looks something like uh, an arms race at the moment to get to certain uses of AI that look great from an efficiency point of view or maybe a value-add point of view, but I'm not so sure that we understand the consequences of them versus the ensuring that the technology is trustworthy, ensuring it's safe to use and ensuring that it adheres within, you know, societal norms and societal boundaries. And, you know, recently there was the exodus of people from open AI and the, and the, the open rebellion of the people in open AI about the sacking of the chief executive there. And it seemed to it seems to me that at the heart of that was 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 that discussion a, a wish by some people in the organisation to move fast move faster for commercial advantage, and and a wish for other people in the organisation to actually maybe go a bit slower, be a bit more thoughtful. I wonder what your observations on that tension are because that to me seems to be like a microcosm of of part of the bigger problem here. Well, actually. Uh... Um, let me start from the idea that probably we don't know very well what happened inside. Oh, uh, because I, I can argue also that if the boss can be fired, the boss and the founder can be fired so easily, and I was a, a worker, then I can think that I could be the next in the list. And mm-hmm. so the reaction could be connected also to that. But right. uh, when you say ethics, you are not saying uh, a mathematical calculus with one solution. You are talking about human sensibility, human perspective, and there is no ethics without an ethical discussion. And so what we saw in OpenAI, if it is an ethical discussion, that is really good because that means that the company is not aligned just to the profit, but the people that are committing themselves in that company express a culture in which they make uh, to themselves a series of questions about what kind of freedom and what kind of responsibility they have on the product that they will, would like to release. It goes back to that, that global point, which is there's lots of pressures and people fear falling behind, and that creates an impetus and a pressure to drive forward and 
push past the questioning and the ethical discussion and everything else because there's this 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 arms race that's going on with AI that seems to want to c- compel humankind to go as fast as they can because they don't want to be beaten. And I think there's a balance that's striking that balance we struggle with and sometimes it falls far too one way and maybe sometimes we paralyze ourselves with a discussion and lose out on a load of benefit as well to the individual so it's, it's that you see that balance playing out constantly all the time and the the system that drives the global network doesn't help because it's always applying pressure on behind us isn't it this sort of like you're always having to push back against it to say hang on a minute let's check and back and balance what we're actually doing here let's move on to how it's useful to frame this so i, th- I think paulo you've got a three-level framework within which you can think about how ethics can be applied or at least the impact of certain things. you want to share that with us? Yeah, of course. When you talk to ethics, you talk to multiple uh, agent effect on complex system. If we talk about economics, there is the single user that simple make or buy something. And there is also the economics intent as the general system. And so in a parallel way, when we talk about AI and ethics, we have to talk about the producer of AI, the the biggest uh, uh, services that come from server. Then you have the deployer. There are the middle figure that simply apply that kind of capability to a tailored solution. And then you have the user. And the user is uh, me and you and everyone that is simple facing an AI application. And so there are really different questions, really different uh, freedom and responsibility for every one of these levels. A a, a producer, for for example, is someone that should be able to say that the data set that are behind the system are not biased. The deployer should be one that say that that function that is a, a call or an API on a server fit well the context in which the call is made. So for example, if I have an image recognition and I apply to uh, a producing, uh, irony producing, a press producing of pieces, it's really different if I use the image recognition to decide which patient will live and which one we will die at an emergency room. And then you have the user. And the user for example, should have the freedom to know if the decision-making process on him is made by an algorithm or by a human beings, if he's interacting with an automatic system or, or, or not. And so different level, because it's a really complex things like our life, in these really complex things, we have to give different perspective uh, to be really ethical. Hmm. And this is a little bit of a tangent, but it was in our earlier conversation, and I'm interested to know how it plays in in your mind is the notion of globalization and whether, you know, when you're thinking about different perspectives on ethics, or whether it seems obvious that society and societal norms in different parts of the globe will have different perspectives on what's ethical or not. So when you've got a something like AI, which is kind of instantly global, how do those two things come together in your mind? Because that, that feels like another, that's a troubling dimension that I hadn't actually thought of previously when we've been working on this subject. Well, uh, the first one that made this problem was MIT Lab, because they make a survey and ask to United States people, uh, do you think that autonomous vehicles should be regulated? Almost 100% tell yes. Should be regulated by the producer? 93, we don't trust them. Uh, 
should be regulated by the government. 94, we don't trust him. Okay. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, don't, you don't trust him, but they got to regulate. It's like, <laughs> that doesn't quite work. At that, point, at that point, MIT Labs guys that are really smart uh, make, make a, a, an online survey. So there was like uh, the book when you have to study, when you try to take your license drive with a lot of situation. No? And, and so you are alone on the car and there are two people on the street. Should the car kill yourself or kill the two people on the street? Mm. And then flipping the, the question, you are with another one on the street and there is a car with one man inside yeah. who should be dying. I suspect self-preservation played out quite well in that question. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but the most interesting thing is was on the example in which they 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 put uh, two young people crossing the street, one elderly man on the car, and another example with the same situation, but the two younger kids was crossing with red light. Oh. And so the, the real interesting things was that we don't have a share common solution, but we can split solution according to culture. So Asian people are much more intended to preserve the young life, mm -hmm. Western, the elderly. And, and so the, the Northern country of Europe, if you cross with the red, you are dead. Can you imagine a Mediterranean like me in which everyone does what you want in Rome and, and things like that. And so this was a huge point because someone said, okay, there is not a, a common norm, valid worldwide, so cannot be any ethics. But, you know, this is a wrong focal point on ethics because ethics is just not norms. Ethics is also value. Ethics is also virtues. So if I ask to everyone here in this room, do you prefer a just or unjust AI? Well, this is a virtues. Yeah. Everyone would like to say just. Then we can discuss how much is just. Uh -huh. But just is universal. So we have to define different things when we talk about ethics. The most important thing to have an international agreement are not norms, are not values, but are principle. Principle is the tools that are used when you are in a dilemma. So if you have a dilemma in which you can kill one or five, the principle is minimize the loss. Uh, and everyone is a, can find an agreement on that. So when you move to a global scale, you have to change the perspective. In a, com in a community that is characterized by a, some sort of common culture, you can find also norm values and other things. And that could be a company. So a company, it's really easy that they can have a common culture. If you go to a worldwide a global community of human beings, then principle are enough. And principle is a lot of things because you can have a really effective design, for example, with a principle like minimize the loss. And in your mind, is that where the dialogue is going? You're involved in a, a number of some of the big world conversations on this. You know, Is it heading in the right direction from that perspective? And are the right people involved in that conversation, do you think? Well, uh, my experience tell me that everyone would like to have some discussion on ethics because yeah. the, 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 the speed of transformation, like you said before, is so high and the effort could be so wide that we need some you know, cardinal points to, to move ourselves. What is much more effective is this discussion on principle. We can also discuss some values. Values are the lower step than principle. We can agree on values. But then also values are some, some differences really, really, really deep. Uh, 
probably the biggest difference between uh, the Asian and China culture and the Western culture is the value that we give to the human beings or the value that we give to the community. Because uh, for Western people, especially all, after all the blood of the last century with the World War II, human rights is something that is declined uh, in a singular way. Mm. You, me, has, we have human rights and no one can touch me. For other culture, the community as a whole is the place of the value. Uh, this is value. Uh, uh, you can find universal value like life, but you can find also really big difference. And norm is still more complex and cultural oriented. Things what happening now in a culture like United States after the pandemic in some country, in some, in some states like California, you cannot be arrested if you are a thief of small things. This is a huge change in a norm that before was uh, really strict. And so we, if you would like to build a global ethics, we cannot start from the norm. We start to, to, for the principle, try to agree on the major number of values and then allow people to develop norms that respect principle and value. And maybe just to bring our conversation today to a little bit of a close, how does the Rome call for ethics? First of all, first of all I guess, for those who haven't heard of it, what is it? And, and what's the big contribution that, that you're seeking to make through it? Well, actually, the Rome Call for AI Ethics is a document signed for the first time on February 28, 2020, just one day before the big lockdown for COVID-19. And right. that uh, right. that call was uh, a collection of six principles, six ethical principles, that simple st- allow different entities to stitch together and to start to produce an ethical culture for AI. Mm. Uh, in the original signature 2020, uh, we have Microsoft, we have IBM, we have the Catholic Church, and we have the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization of United Nations, and then we have a, a member of the government, Italian government, the Ministry for Innovation. In January 2023, we have two years of pause because, you know, pandemic was so strong. We have the signature of the High Rabbinate of Jerusalem, and the, for, the Muslim Forum for Peace. That make of that document the first document in which the three monotheistic Mediterranean religions agreed together. And in the next July, we bring that document to Hiroshima, where the Easter religion will sign the principle. Meanwhile, more than 150 universities signed and agreed to produce an ethical class uh, in their engineering courses, and we have other okay. company and we have other other subject. So, what is wrong called for AI ethics? It's like a tide. It's like a wave, an ethical wave, an ethical tide. The simple ask uh, to people to be aware of what's going on, like we are doing in this podcast, and to act consequentially. Mm. I wouldn't if you wouldn't mind just setting out the six principles that are contained in the document. Yeah, the wrong call has three area, and is ethics, education, and rights with six principles. The first one is transparency. AI system must be understandable to all. And this is a really good principle on the user side. Should be inclusive. The system must not discriminate against anyone because every human being has equal dignity. And this is on producer side. Then the system has to be accountability. There must be always someone who takes responsibility for what a machine does. And this is on the employer side. The machine should be impartial. The principle is impartiality. AI system must not follow or create biases. Uh, 
reliability, AI must be reliable. And then the sixth principle is security and privacy. This system must be secure and respect the privacy of user. So those six principles now are really worldwide and no one is making any objection to this. Santi, what have you been looking at this week? So each week I do some research on related ideas in transformation and tech, and this week I thought we should take a look at the importance of ethical AI to shape a responsible future. So AI is changing how things are curated for people, making experiences more personalized in many areas of their life. As AI gets better at creating content, it's important to think about the ethical issues that come with these changes. So organizations need to both understand the challenges and the risks around AI and take these fully into account when designing and deploying applications. So I have a question to you. What are the key challenges for companies in ensuring fairness and avoiding biases in AI-generated content? So, I mean, for me, the world needs to go through a very good process of education to raise awareness of what's going on to have conversations like this about potential impact the consequences of your actions i always love that conversation the the retrospective that they did where scientists created the algorithm ran it over data created positive feedback loops to give you the information that you wanted and then they stood back and realized they'd created bubbles and people got stuck in them and didn't see outside their world. And so that driving education to raise awareness so that people think about it before they start the journey, as opposed to starting the journey and then standing back and going, oh, if I'd only known before, for me is absolutely key. And we're right on the edge of AI becoming something big and of big social impact. So now is the time to make sure that for any organization that's looking to use it, that their staff are properly understanding of what the impact can be of bad data, mm. biased data, not thinking for the future and thinking about how this might affect the end user. I agree with that. And I think at the moment, as we're going through this, the process of actually trying to understand this in uh, practical and day-to-day terms, all of what Rob just said, I think, needs some as- aspect of scaffolding in organizations. Certainly it's education programs, but I think lots of organizations, uh, you know, I was included, have put in, governance groups around this to act as escalation points to act as catalysts for conversations and i think even though we don't have all the answers yet hopefully some form of governing structure is evolving around it and that organizations are making a point of considering the ethical issues with the deployment of ai you know like there are many of the, you know, I've, I say many, might even be all of the big producers at the moment have been talking about the ethical responsibility they have. And what's in my head, Paolo, is, as I'm thinking, Schalke's question through is your is your three levels, you know, so producer, developer, and user. I wonder if I wonder if that framework applies itself very directly to sort of the corporate uh, adoption of AI. Yeah, actually, I think that we can answer. Uh all this question with one more principle that is transparency. Mm-hmm. Because if we have transparency, uh, one producer should be transparent on the on which kind of data and lack of data could be used inside the, the, the training system. The deployer will be transparent on which kind of uh, feature are embedded or not embedded. And the user 
as the view on all the process and can decide if could be an exception for him and asking for a human review, for example. And transparency, I think, is the principle that could fix all the questions that you are talking about. And having that principle as a cultural features in company uh, that would like to simple jump on the AI circus or having that in a user experience could be a really transformative principle in what we see now. Because if you push transparency and everybody sees what's happened and you've got the visibility, then everybody can choose and see and judge and then it incentivize people to make sure they get it right. The lack of transparency might drive a, a different way of working. So I think that, that is absolutely key that if you put that in at every step, then somebody else can see it, check it, balance it and call it out. Do we see a tension though in commercial competitiveness and, and the race to achieve like in inverted commas, the best, whatever that might look like? Do you think that's in tension with transparency? Well, I think uh, in, in one side, we have a lack of culture. So we are, in some way, we are used to have a, a computer system that simply give an answer and we don't ask why we got that kind of answer. And, and this is one side. So we have a lack of transparency for that. And then uh, uh, there is a, 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 an understanding of transparency, a wrong understanding of transparency that is simple against the copyrights or, or some kind of rights on the product. But actually, this kind of transparency is uh, something that is in some way uh, intended when we start to talk about international standard. Because an international standard, ISO uh, rule, is simple a transparency applied to engineered system. So I know which kind of metal is behind, I know the feature, I know the limitation, and, and and I can apply in a safe way. So we need to transform the principle, transparency, in, in a standardization norm, norms that allow us to play the transparency in every situation. And do you think we're moving fast enough on that? Or do you think but, you know, we'll be subject to the robot overlords before we get around to publishing the first ISO on it? Well, uh, you know, I, I cannot deny that there are not only ethical values, there are also commercial values behind that. Yeah, exactly. A and so the tension is here, you know. Yeah, for, for sure. Oh, there's plenty of examples in the world where the system can't move fast enough. And I think climate change is a good example as well, where you see the world trying to know it's the right thing to have a conversation, but all the nuances that exist in different nation states come to bear and they find it very difficult to agree. And I think, you know, uh, humankind does struggle on a global level to try and deal with these things. So uh, time will tell. And uh, as ever, I welcome our robot overlords and hope they're benevolent. Yeah. I, I still think you're probably too deep to get your way out of it now, Rob, but <laughs> I, I, I admire you keeping trying. <laughs> Maybe they'll listen to the podcast and go, oh, he's all right. Yeah. They probably won't bother listening to it. They'll just use the transcript. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Look, on that note, Paolo, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon and guiding us through an extremely complex set of problems and giving us some frameworks with which to think about them afresh. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, we end every episode of this show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. And that could be you've got an amazing Christmas holiday coming up, or it could be something that's happening in your professional life. So, uh, Paolo, what are you excited about doing next? Well, I, will, I would like to say something that is really mixed. You know, as a Franciscan, we are really well known because we have the first traditional uh, 
nativity representation in the history. Mm. So my Christmas idea is to go in Grecia, where the first nativity happened, and having a, a retirement moment in one isolated room when I can read a good book of, of AI and ethics to come back a little bit more Christmas-like. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we wish you well with that. Thank you. A huge thanks to our guest this week. Paolo, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks also to our sound and editing wizards, Ben and Louis, our jingling producer, Marcel, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and X, Dave Chapmanger, Sanchez Al, and Rob Snow Menahan. Feel free to follow or connect with us and please get in touch if you have any comments or ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. Wish all of our listeners a very happy Christmas and happy holidays. See you in another reality next year. <laughs>